Hey friends, welcome to the Threadcast. This is Ryan Smith here, pastor at Common Thread Church. I hope that you are having a good day today. Um, we are continuing our podcast here, walking through the book of Romans. Our theme has been replacing power and privilege with peace. Um, and we've been doing it backwards. And we started in the back section of Romans to kind of identify the concept that, that Paul was trying to uh, talk to a group, two groups of people in in Rome. Uh, there were five churches in Rome. They're made of two groups of people: the Jewish people, Jewish Christians, and the Gentile Christians. Now, um, but his his goal here was to always unite the Jewish and Gentile Christians so that they, they could become one. They they could become one force in Rome, so that they could um, bring forth um, Jesus's ideas of creating a new kingdom that's based off of peace and not power and privilege. But um, before we go deeper, because we're, we're, um, we've come back now to the beginning of, of Romans, we're in chapter 1, so we can now start reading the theology of Romans um, through the lens that there was these two groups of people and that Paul is trying to unite them and to bring peace into this world. There's a lot there, right? Um, but you also need to remember... Um, what has been going on um, before um, Paul writes this book in the church in Rome, okay? So um, before Paul wrote this book, um, several years before, the Roman emperor was having struggles with all Jewish people, that they were causing riots in Rome, and it was just hard. And so finally, the emperor says, you know what? I'm sick of these Jewish people. We're kicking them out of the city. And so even Jewish Christians were kicked out. And so um, at that time, all Jewish people, including Jewish Christians, were kicked out of Rome. And so at the time, the only um, Christians left were Gentile Christians. Uh, The emperor um, dies about five years later after this edict. Uh, They bring in a new emperor. And so um, Jews are allowed back into Rome. And so there was a five-year period where the church existed, um, where it was just Gentile Christians, and kind of the analogy we use, if you're a uh, an Avengers fan, right? It's the blip, right? You know, when Thanos snaps his fingers and half the the people um, disappear, and then about a five year period later, you know, it comes back. These people come back, and so the world has existed with half the people gone, and then all of a sudden they're all back again, and then the world has to learn how to live together. There you go, you Avenger nerds. There's there's some Bible and Avengers mixed together. But this is what Paul is writing to. He's writing to a church now that has Jewish and Gentile Christians who've been separated for five years are now trying to exist as a church in Rome. Um, and so you can imagine um, the Gentile Christians, you know, had been doing it for five years without him. Um, They didn't need the Jewish Christians to come in and tell them what to do. The Jewish Christians have this air about them because they are the group of people who have been carrying God's word since since Abraham. And so um, it was a battle of who was in charge, who was going to rule the church, what standards were they going to live by. And so this is the strife that exists. And so this is what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to bring these two people, these two groups of people together under peace. 
And so we have to keep that in mind as we keep reading through the theology because the theology of Romans can get real deep real quick. And sometimes we just spend our time in the theology and remember that Paul wanted a lived theology, this idea that he wanted us to, to live out what he was thinking, not just think about it and talk about it, but to make it real. And so we get into um, the second half of chapter 1. Last week we talked about the introduction of it, but now we get into sections of, of verse 18 through 32. Now, I want to say this. Um, this is possibly, I have a, how do I put this? I, I have a new understanding of how I'm reading through Romans, and it's been really enlightening to me. Um, and I want to say this isn't because of, oh, how great I am and how smart I am, or, or you know, I've got this great insight, but I've been reading um, new scholars, new new writers as to how they have been interpreting Romans, um, and it makes sense to me. And so today I want to kind of present some of those thoughts to you, and it may be new to you. If you've never studied Romans, it, it won't be new. It'll be new, but it won't be a new idea as to what you've been used to, right? Um but I want to suggest that um, this section, 18 through 32 of chapter 1, has been maybe grossly misused, um, kind of used as a weapon, if you will. Um, and I want to suggest that maybe it's been used in a way that it was not intended by Paul when he wrote it, okay? Um, and maybe Paul doesn't even agree with what is in this section, <laughs> Wait a minute here, Ryan. What are you saying here? Um, so here's the deal. Um, the, these words, I want to say, um, come. They're, they're meant to be in the book of Romans. Um, they're by Paul's authorship. But I want to suggest that these aren't Paul's words alone. And we'll come back to that here in a minute. And so, if that's true, um, maybe what is in 18 through 33 through 32 is not meant to be Paul's teaching, which that's been how it's been presented is this idea. It's Paul's salvation teaching, you know, all are lost kind of deal. But maybe there's something more going on here that we want to dive into. Um, so what is this all about? All right. So get your shovel and get your boots on because we're going to get deep here <clears throat> and we got to do some backstory here to get all this. Um, but here's what I want to do. I don't normally do this, but I, I think this is important. I want you to hear what is it. If you haven't read 18 through 32, I want to read it now. Um, and if you don't want to hear that, you can fast forward through this part. Um, but I want to I want you to kind of see what's going on in this section, um, just so that we're all on the same page. So it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the simple desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. 
Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with one, with other men and received in themselves a due penalty of their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think of it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what so that they do what ought not what ought not to be done. <laughs> they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, god haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they do. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Okay, um, so this section here, um, Paul explicitly describes his audience. Um, this group is marked by sin and suppression of the truth, even though God has revealed to them. Knowing God, they don't honor Him or thank Him and became futile and darkened. They made a claim for wisdom, but they became idol makers or idolaters. Consequently, God handed them over and that led to an embodied degradation and impurity through uncontrolled desires. This degradation included unnatural same-sex sexual relations a view that's derived just as much from Paul's Bible as from his perception of what is unnatural. Now, once again, Paul describes this group's embodied life of sin. So the emphasis of the list in these passages are on those who, knowing the truth or knowing God as creatures of God, choose not to respond to God properly and who choose instead to become idolaters with the specific result of God's consequent surrendering them to their free choices, which led to debased desires and manifold sins. Now, here's what I want you to hear. The sins explicitly described in 1, 18-32 are not common sins of common sinners. They are beyond a stretch for describing what we understand as Jewish sins. Furthermore, if you look deeper into Romans 2, 14-15, it offers an entirely different description of Gentiles, one where some are approved by God on the basis of their moral behavior. That means that 18-32 cannot describe all humans or even all Gentiles. So to summarize before we take this next step, Romans 1, 18-32 describes not typical sins of typical sinners, but specific sins of a specific kind of sinner. So Paul is not universalizing here. He is setting up the audience of Romans chapter 2. We'll come back to that here in a minute. Put differently, talking about the Gentiles is not the same as talking about to the Gentiles. But before we get to this uh, this rhetorical turn of Romans 2, 
we need to see the context of Romans eight of Romans one eighteen through thirty-two. Okay, so this is kind of where we talk about um, how these are Paul's words, but they're not Paul's words. Okay, so the words in Romans one are a standard Jewish stereotype of godless, adulterous Gentiles of the diaspora or the people who have been dis- dispersed. Um, so Romans 1, 18-32 is not trying to describe all humans. And so remember, for a long time, Jews hated Gentiles. Jews were considered to be uh, the better race, the better culture, right? Um, and so there was this idea that Jews talked about Gentiles. They had a language that described those people. In chapter 1, 18-32, resembles that language. So, once again, yes, 1, 18-32 is about Gentiles, but is more a Jewish stereotype of a specific sort of Gentile. So, for support in calling Romans 1, 18-32 a stereotype, uh, we need to look at the language of a book called The Wisdom of Solomon in chapters 13 through 14, which it itself mer- emerges from a long biblical tradition of casting deep shadows over paganism. Now, The Wisdom of Solomon is a book that was written by Solomon. Um, it was in the early Bible. You can find it in the Apocrypha. But then it was taken out of our version of what the Bible we have today because... The people at the time felt that it was more written by friends of Solomon rather than Solomon himself. But by referencing this book, it doesn't hurt our point today because what I want you to see is that the sentiment that we see in Romans 1, 18-32 was prevalent in Jewish culture for a long time. And no matter who it was written by, these thoughts existed well before Paul wrote Romans 1, 18-32. So, two summary statements that pull into a bundle of this near equivalent of what Paul himself does in Romans 1. Um, we look, let's look in um, a couple of these sections of, of the wisdom of Solomon. The first one is from 1427. For the worship of idols not to be named is the beginning and cause and end of every evil. And then in 1430, but just penalties will overtake them on two counts because they thought wrongly about God and devoting themselves to idols. And because indecent, they swore unrighteously through contempt for holiness. So the wisdom of Solomon contends, as does Paul, that humans know God and God's ways because because they are God's own creation. Knowledge of God, then, is natural to these Gentiles. As the wisdom of Solomon puts it here, For all people who were ignorant of God were foolish by nature, and they were unable from the good things that are seen to know the one who exists, nor did they recognize the artisan while paying heed to his works. But they supposed that either fire or wind or swift air or the circle of the stars or turbulent water or the luminaries of heaven were the gods that rule the world. And perhaps most tellingly, 
tellingly similar to that of Paul's listing of sins was what we see in Wisdom of Solomon here in 14. Look at this. Then it was not enough for them to err about the knowledge of God, but though living in great strife due to ignorance, they call such great evils peace. For whether they kill children in their initiations or celebrate secret mysteries or hold frenzied rebels with strange customs, they no longer keep either their lives or their marriages pure, but they either treacherously kill one another or grieve one another by adultery, and all is a raging riot of blood and murder, theft and deceit, corruption, faithlessness, tumult, perjury, confusion over what is good, forgetfulness of favors, defiling of souls, sexual perversion, disorder in marriages, adultery, and debauchery. So, we see that Paul's language is not identical to what we see in, in, this, in this song of this wisdom of Solomon, but close enough that it's reasonable to think Paul is either using wisdom of Solomon or is dependent on the kind of tradition at work in this text. So the idea here is that when Paul wrote Romans 1, it wasn't just unique to him, but he was using uh, potentially the, the wisdom of Solomon specifically, like he had it next and he was kind of um, re, um, rewriting it for his modern times, if you will, or just that sentiment that was a part of the Jewish nation that they had passed down from generation to generation. He was at least referencing those thoughts. So, why does he do this? Why does he write this if this maybe, you know, maybe, um, again, it's this idea if he's using these, maybe he agrees with it, or maybe he's, he didn't necessarily agree with the sentiment, but he's using a language that is familiar. But familiar to who? Right? Because we, we see that this is about Gentiles, and so we try to apply this to Gentiles or to all people, right? That's just how evil they are, which is, this is... This can be true in this sense, but I want to suggest that in the writing of 1, 18 through 32, what he is doing is actually laying a trap, okay? That he's using language that Jewish Christians would have agreed with. That remember, when these two, um, the Jewish and the Gentile Christians in Rome, when they're fighting over each other, and when... um, when the, this is being, when this new book is being read to them by Phoebe, you know, I imagine, I imagine they sit on different sides of the building, right? You know, there's the Jewish side, the Gentile side. They don't intermingle very well. And when Phoebe is reading this, the beginning of the book, I can imagine those Jewish Christians are like, mm-hmm, yeah, they're shouting amen, to preach it. You know, that's exactly right, those evil Gentile people, right? And so they're shaking their heads, they're shouting amen, And most importantly, they are thinking that they are better than the Gentile Christians, that they should be the ones that rule the church. But then the trap is set because they're shouting him in their green, and then we get to the kicker. We get to Romans chapter 2, verse 1. And this is where, this is the suggestion that what we just read was not what Paul was teaching as, as, um, doctrine but more as a trap because he says in 2 1 he says this you therefore have no excuse you who pass judgment and so he introduces the 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 personhood the character of the judge 
And we'll talk about that more later, but I want you to see this. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And so this whole list that we just read in 18 through 36, that we imagine the Jewish Christians nodding, saying, mm-hmm, preach it, preach it, you go on. He's saying, when you judge based on those things, you are exactly the same. Not, oh, you know, yeah, those are evil and you're evil, but hey, you're a little bit better because you're not doing those things. No, he says you are the exact same. The trap has been set. And so my suggestion is that 1, 18-32 isn't a section we can take by itself as a proof text to condemn all those heathens, just like the Jewish Christians would have been doing. But we have to take it in stride with what Paul is trying to accomplish in this letter. Right, This idea that he's wanting to unite two groups of people. But he has to level the playing ground. And so the Jewish Christians who have come in um, and think they are better than himself because of this. He is setting this trap to say, hey, this this teaching that you've been using, the way you've been using it to see all these Gentiles, hey, 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 it's not it's not right. There's something that's going on here that it's it, you think you're better than them, and you're not. So he's label, leveling the playing field, and so we have to think that maybe. He may not have complete, completely agreed with everything that is in 18 through 32 or is the way we have taught it in the past. Or that this is a specific teaching like some have suggested of, of Paul. But he was using it as a gotcha moment. But that being said, um, and we're going to have to dive into this because there's more that comes out of chapter 2 and chapter 3 that's going to kind of bring this home. And we'll dive into that more. But that kind of gives you some things to think about. But there's still two main truths in this section, in this text, that that we can still wrestle with, um, that we can still think about. And the first one, um, we talked about this past Sunday, comes from 120. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And what Paul is claiming that has been claimed from the beginning of time is that God's creation, that his nature, is evidence of who he is. That he doesn't need the Bible, he doesn't need the church to proclaim him alone. That the good news is in creation. That humanity, that nature, is all proclaiming the divine existence of Yahweh. And so this is a truth that um, no matter what Paul is using one eighteen through thirty two to proclaim, this is a truth that exists even in in the the wisdom of Solomon, even today. That we can find God outside of church, outside of the Bible. That we can find God in creation. That there is a truth at the core of creation that proclaims the existence of a divine being. And so we, we, can, we can wrestle with that, we can le- listen to that, we can learn from that. But there is this idea that God says that there is no excuse that you cannot see that I am real. Right? Now, that we can get into a conversation about atheists and how they can deny that still, and they do. 
right? Um, and they use creation to deny the existence of God. Um, but God says, no, you, when you see, when you really dive into what I did, <laughs> you can only know that I exist. And so there's truth all around us. The second truth that we can see in this is that we is that when man sees that there is something out there that man struggles to put a name to it and sometimes we deny that it is this Yahweh right um in verse 25 it says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever pray And so man has always tried to explain the truth that it sees in creation by making idols and stories and worshiping these other things, things that they can understand better because it's too hard to grasp the infiniteness. Infiniteness, is that a word? The infinity of who God is and these idols and these um, sacred cows, if you will, are what has torn the church apart, what has torn God's creation apart for all of time. And so we can look back at this and we can look at Romans and we can see how they made idols. We can look at the Old Testament and see they made these idols of bulls and rams and these crazy looking things out of gold and silver and all these other types of of stone. And we can make fun of them. How silly of them to worship these, these beings. But as we talked about Sunday... We do it the same. We do the same thing. We exchange the truth of God in our lives for idols that we make, right? We take good things that God created and we turn them into bad things and we make them what rules our life instead of the love and grace that God teaches. And so I want to leave that. I think that's good good for us this week, things to wrestle with, to think about, um, to chew on. Um, one, you know, the idea that, that creation screams of a creator. And what do you do with that? Where do you see that? Where, what truth do you see in nature that proclaim truths about who God is and what he does? The second thing is, is that we all struggle. We all fight the desire to want to name that in something that we can understand, and so we make it our own idol, a truth that we have to live by. And so we have our own idols in our lives. You know, and yesterday we talked about the idea that some of us worship um, time or busyness, um, that we have to be busy or that we have to be financially stable, that we have to create um, this security net for our families, for ourselves. And those things in them of themselves aren't necessarily bad, but when they become the rulers of our lives and what dictate what we do and what we think, they become our idols. So the challenge for us is to name those idols in our life and to give them up, to, to sacrifice them, if you will, to give them to the true God of the universe and of our hearts. So those are some things um, to think about. Love to hear your thoughts. Join us in um, our Faith Life app as we have discussions this week to wrestle with what does it mean to see God in creation and what does it mean to have idols in our lives? What are they? What do we need to name? And how maybe that's the better discussion we need to have this week is is how do we give those idols up? Because it's it's easy to name them you know, now. Um, we can do that. 
but it doesn't make them easy to give them up just because they're named, right? Um, they're so ingrained in our lives. So, so maybe that's a discussion we can have this week as well. Hope you have a great day. Grace and peace.